I am Patrick O'Mara, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, politicians, diplomats, scholars, and writers, and we try to get to know the person. Our guest today is Ambassador Nirupama Rao. Ambassador, welcome to Profiles. I'm delighted you. you were able to join us. Thank you very much indeed. I'd like to begin by letting our audience know a little bit more about you and about growing up in India and about why you decided to become an ambassador eventually. Um, You had a role model in your family, right? An uncle? That's right. Tell me about him. Well, I I was born and bred in India. I um, hail from the southern Indian state of Kerala, Uh, It's in the deep south of the country, on the west coast of India, and southwest coast to be exact. It's the state where the monsoon hits the mainland uh, first before it travels northward uh, to to provide much-needed rain to the dusty plains of of the rest of India. Mm So I was born there. My parents are both from Kerala. My father was in the army, and therefore I was uh, uh, raised in various uh, states, different regions of India. I never studied in my home state of Kerala. So there was always this nostalgia, this sense of longing to know more about the place where I was born. And that is reflected to some extent in the poetry that I wrote uh, much later that uh, sense of an imaginary homeland, as I think Benedict Anderson called it. Yes, indeed. But I um, wanted to be a diplomat uh, from uh, very early in my life. Uh, My mother had a brother, uh, an older brother, who served in the Ministry of External Affairs, and he, in fact, uh, did uh, uh, some years of service in Japan soon after the war. And he would bring back lots of books and artifacts from Japan. And that fascinated me as a young girl. And I wanted to be able to travel to see these very, to me, exotic uh, lands. And, uh, and I was fascinated by history always. So, so history and current affairs. And that I was able to learn um, from my father, who was a very avid follower of the news and read a great deal about uh, foreign policy. And so I would say my father was a very defining influence in my life. But they wanted you to be a doctor at one point. Yes, but they were, they were very understanding parents, I think, much ahead of their times. And uh, they never sought to impose, uh, you know, or put undue pressure on me to choose a certain career. Uh, they had a lot of faith and confidence in me. I'm glad for that. And uh, I had a certain aptitude. Uh, I, was a very, I, was, I was quite, uh, I excelled in academics, and I think they had full faith in my ability to do well in whatever I in English. chose to do. In English. In English and history. And history, yeah. And I studied sociology also when right. I was an undergraduate. And did you do music as well at one point? I, I studied a little South Indian classical music for yes. a, about 18 months. Yeah. But I never studied an instrument. or And we were fond of Western music, my sister and I, right. when we were growing up. So we listened to a lot of popular music from a station uh, which uh, was then called Radio Ceylon. You know, Ceylon before oh, yeah. it came to be called Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka yes. And they used to do a lot of broadcasting, which, uh, which uh, was uh, beamed across 
the Pork Strait, which divides yeah. uh, Sri Lanka from India, and was listened to by many people in India. So that's how I got to listen to Western music. Your sister, the Admiral. Yes, it's she's an admiral remarkable. in the Navy. What a remarkable family <laughs> to um, – and, and in many ways, um, you've had a remarkable career, of course. You've had appointments in many places, in China, in Russia – that's and right. the United States. So it's been a, a lively and interesting uh, life. And, of course, before coming to the U.S., you were the second woman in the external affairs area to be foreign secretary. That's right. So that's quite a, a, a remarkable indication of women's development in India. Well, I think, yes, women and the civil services have had the opportunity to, to rise to the top in my country. And uh, and in the foreign service particularly, I've seen so much transformation and change in the four decades that I have been a member of the diplomatic service. Ambassador Rao, you've been involved as a public servant, but then there's been that second life, what you refer to as your oxygen, the special life of poetry. And I've been thrilled to read your book, which... Um, uh, rain rising, which gives me an insight into so many things, because the poetry deals with everything from remembrance, reflection, and exploration. Tell me about being a poet and being a nomad diplomat. I think uh, the two um, you know, existences are not <laughs> uh, contradictory. I think uh, being a diplomat allows you also to express yourself uh, creatively uh, and to understand the power of language and to be able to um, project a point of view in, in an effective and as compressed but meaningful a manner as possible. And, I, and when you look at poetry, I'm not saying that um, poetry is the stuff of diplomacy or diplomacy is the stuff of poetry, but uh, poetry is also all about language and using language as a vehicle to communicate very deep meanings and also um, to express uh, the voice of one's uh, inner soul. And uh, so poetry has always appealed to me, even, even from the time I was growing up. But I began to write it a little more seriously um, when I was well into my diplomatic career and when I had had the opportunity to travel to many, many countries, many exotic, many faraway distant lands, and to meet very interesting personalities, and also to, um, to remember uh, my life as I was growing up, my, my longing f uh, for my uh, place of birth, which I'd never really got to live in and to really experience the way I would have liked to. So I wanted to express all that, uh, that longing through my poetry. It's remarkable for a diplomat because I was reading a review of your poetry which says a first volume normally contains what is nearest to the poet's heart, family, love, frustrations, fulfillments, and curves of the most intimately felt emotions. Many of those things, frustrations and emotions, a diplomat doesn't show. So you were busy writing about these and on the surface being the diplomat? Well, I've, I would say that I'm, uh, I'm being a diplomat. I've very much internalized being a diplomat. And I certainly um, don't regard it um, 
superficially, but indeed very seriously, the work I do. And as I said at the outset, I don't see any contradiction between my creative impulse and what I do professionally. I think um, uh, both have given strength uh, to each other. And uh, so I, I've been comfortable with that state of affairs. So the poems deal with family, with remembrances, right. with new places. Quite right. But also with India. Quite right. With India in terms of the plight of India, because it's not just a superficial poem on a kind of serene India. Yes. So you do deal with the full sweep of... Um, I try to do that. Yes. <laughs> would you like to read part of a poem for us? Uh, yes, I would certainly like to do that. I would have picked one of my particular favorites, which is really about my maternal grandmother, and uh, she was uh, a, a woman who had uh, who lived all her life within the confines of her household. Uh, she brought up eight children, and um, and uh, she was uh, she was a constant presence in our ancestral home. Whenever I visited for our summer holidays when we were little girls, our parents used to take us to the ancestral house to spend the summers. And uh, so I remember her in that house. And this poem is really about her and a photograph of hers from the time she was, she was young, before I was born. But that photograph fascinated me. And so this poem is my um, imagined um, uh, depiction of uh, what she was at that time and, and my associations with her subsequently. So it's called Madhavi Amma's Photo. Madhavi was her name. Madhavi Amma was her name. So the title of the poem is Madhavi Amma's Photo. Grandmother sits rather formally, dark hair, center parted, age 38 in this photograph of a dark room the white of her clothes indenting the shadows. The gramophone with its gaping horn plays tenor tones and outside the photograph the children of her forefathers have come in their boats and wait in the backwater. In the still night I can hear their whispered voices as they possess her. This photograph is of one who is missed and whose voice still chides my children as their feet pound above her dark room. It conjures up so much. I wonder if it wouldn't be appropriate just to have a little bit of music at this point. Oh, that would be lovely. there's a transition from this wonderful poem, perhaps to a lullaby. Yes. Do you have a favorite lullaby? Well, I do, and it's a lullaby in Malayalam, which is my mother tongue, and it's the lullaby that um, is sung, in fact, to all babies in Kerala when you know they're very little, and it's something that I sang uh, to my uh, both my sons when they were babies. So it has very sentimental associations for me and beautiful memories, and it's really about the man in the moon the uncle who lives in the moon and all the goodies he's going to bring you and all the things you can ask him for. He's, he's almost like a Santa Claus sitting there and he's going to, going to you know, really transform your life. 
And and this uh, song, uh, the recording that you're going to hear, is from the early 1950s. And in Kerala, I think what is extraordinary, and I think it's quite unique uh, for the world also, a Kerala a performing arts uh, company was sort of set up at that time, which performed theatre and original plays uh, all across the state and in the rest of the country. So this is a song that was recorded at that time in very makeshift uh, studios and um, has become a perennial favorite. So it really is associated with the history of my state also. And, you know, the kind of sentiment that spoke of egalitarianism, equality, uh, that tried to fight um, and fought very effectively against uh, against um, prejudice and uh, and divisions of caste or community. So it was a very progressive environment, and I love this song for that reason also because it it harkens back to a time when there was great progressive change in my place of birth. Our guest today is Ambassador Rao, who represents India in Washington, D.C. Ambassador, I want to talk a bit about U.S. foreign policy. There have been different eras with U.S. foreign policy towards India. Sometimes it's been a key focus, sometimes it's not. It it seems at the moment to be a vibrant phase. Would you agree? I definitely think so. And uh, both uh, countries uh, are natural partners, given the strength of their democratic traditions, given uh, the interests that they share about ensuring peace and stability in the world, uh, their focus on economic development and improving the lives of their people, uh, the fight against terrorism. There are so many pillars to our strategic partnership today. And it's been rightly called a defining partnership for the 21st century. By President Obama. Absolutely. And our Prime Minister, Dr. Manmohan Singh, says this is a relationship founded on principles and on pragmatism. Mm-hmm. And these are important areas because, first of all, there's the economic relationship. But you mentioned terrorism, yes. and that affects both of these countries. Absolutely. And, and we have, so. in fact, a counterterrorism homeland security dialogue now mm-hmm. that has been launched in the last year. We have an initiative to fight terrorism. It's called the Counterterrorism Initiative. So there's a lot of cooperation and uh, sharing of best practices to, to curb this menace particularly. It's a new world with terrorism, isn't it, in many ways. It's very hard to focus on who the protagonist is. 
Uh, well, I, I think uh, there can be no pro- no terrorist can be a protagonist in my view, mm-hmm. if you, uh, because I believe uh, you need to understand that terrorism, you know, uh, is our enemy and uh, is an enemy of progress, is an enemy of uh, marginalized, underprivileged people equally as much as it is it is an enemy of um, you know established societies, and I think it deserves to be eliminated and we need to fight it with with all the strength that we have. Now, there are other important connections between the U.S. and India. Of course, there is trade, which is a major partnership. That's right. There is the whole question of IT. That's right. Which gives us really special connections. And one area that I'd love to hear you say more about There's a diaspora with a large Indian-American community in the United States. Yes, uh, we have close to 3 million Indian-Americans who have made the United States their home. They have progressed and they have prospered in this country. And they have come here uh, with the values of India, uh, with the values of an old civilization, uh, which they naturally and quite rightfully regard as being very precious. So they've been able to blend the old and the new in their existences. And they've succeeded wonderfully well. They're contributing to the progress and prosperity of this country in, in many, many ways. And they, they have been also pillars of our strategic partnership. They have contributed a great deal to expanding and deepening the understanding and friendship between our two democracies. And they've become very important in terms of life in America. Absolutely. Doctors, business people. Yes, and in public life too. We have two Indian American governors exactly. in this country. And, and are they really important because they alert the American public to the relevance of India? I, I believe so because they bring uh, they bring awareness. They 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 in many sense, uh, many ways, I think, enable uh, other Americans to understand India better because they live in small towns, they live in the cities, they live in the countryside. There are communities of Indian Americans uh, all over this this whole nation, and they have reached out to other Americans and built strong friendships and enduring relationships. And I think that has certainly furthered the understanding of India when it comes to America. Another important foreign policy area is China, of course. And there have been various phases also with China. Today, I would assume that China is very important to India as one of its largest trading partners. That's right. And it's not a situation of what has been referred to as opposing giants, would you say, or is there still an element of that? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the epithet opposing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are neighbors, China and India. We share a long border. border between ourselves. We are two very, very large Asian countries, uh, developing countries in the true sense of the word. Uh, whose growth, economic growth, is accelerating, who are being called upon increasingly to play crucial roles on the global stage. So between India and China, I believe in the last couple of decades, we've been able to build a relationship that is quite multidimensional and multifaceted. And despite the fact that there are problem issues between the two countries that remain to be resolved, I think we've set a very constructive example of how two large countries, despite 
differences that uh, still exist in the relationship have been able to construct and to transact and to further a relationship that has many dimensions to it, that helps people in both countries, that maintains peace and tranquility on their borders, that enables confidence building, and um, enables them to consult with each other on a number of multilateral, international, and regional issues that affect their common well-being, their mutual well-being, as also the well-being of people across the world. Right. So even though China might have a relationship with Pakistan, which can complicate things, and probably also in relation to Kashmir, you're still saying it's a very strong bond between I, the two. I, I wouldn't say it's a strong bond. I wouldn't put it in those right. words. But I think we have been able to build a relationship that, uh, that has enabled stability Right. between our two countries right. and uh, that that we've moved away from from conflict uh, and uh, we have moved more in the direction of cooperation on a wide spectrum of issues and we're also able to talk to each other with a degree of candor and openness also about troublesome issues about sensitive issues like the China Pakistan relationship right we've talked about the united states and china and there's india is there room for a dialogue of the three? Well, I think that's a very interesting proposition, and it's certainly something that we should approach with an open mind, with a spirit of inquiry, and uh, that's um, the position that India takes on it. Let me talk a little bit about an area that Americans are very interested in, and that's Afghanistan. I know that India is helping in many ways, in a very difficult situation in Afghanistan. In what ways is India engaging in assistance and in dialogue? Even? Yes. Well, um, our partnership with Afghanistan is very much focused on development, on economic development and reconstruction. And over the last decade, India has uh, has committed, has provided uh, about $2 billion U.S. dollars worth of development assistance to Afghanistan. We have built roads. We have brought electricity to Kabul. Uh, we have reconstructed schools and hospitals. Uh, we are working in the field of uh, women's empowerment. Uh, a lot of young Afghan uh, men and women, young men and women, come to our universities and places of higher education uh, to study. Um, many Afghans come to India just for rest and recuperation and even for medical treatment. So it's a constant bridge, you know, of uh, traffic, uh, especially from Afghanistan to India, yeah. because they come to India because they see India as, as a kind of haven in many ways, a place where they are welcome, where, you know, they find true friendship and reassurance. So that's the kind of relationship that we have built up with Afghanistan. We want Afghanistan to be peaceful, uh, to prosper, uh, to be a kind of hub uh, for trade and transit between Central Asia and South Asia. That is Afghan Afghanistan's natural destiny in many ways, I think. It's meant to be a country like that. And uh, we hope that uh, the situation in Afghanistan stabilizes, that it will be free of radicalism and extremism. It is a 
plural society in many ways. It has so many tribal affiliations and ethnic groups, and we hope they can live together in peace and mutual concord and that they are able to then get on with the tasks of development and consolidation of true democracy within Afghanistan. And, and that has been India's interest, capacity building. That's right. Women's empowerment. empowerment and the whole question even of agriculture exactly. rather than a military initiative. It's, yeah, it is about development. It's about development. It's about development. That's, uh, at the risk of repeating myself, we right. want Afghanistan to prosper. We want the Afghan people, particularly uh, communities like the women of Afghanistan, to mm. really be able to find their voice and uh, to, to be able to build uh, a better life for themselves. It is complicated by the safe havens, of course, that Pakistan has provided to various uh, groups. That and is a complication. It's a complication for Afghanistan. It's a complication for Pakistan. It's a complication for the region. Yes. And I think uh, it is important that um, that those uh, sections uh, of uh, of uh, people uh, or you know the institutions that have traditionally supported uh, these terror groups and uh, provided them with sustenance and and the ability to to grow uh, in strength uh, understand that it is necessary to check the activities of these groups, to eliminate their activities, to control them, to suppress them, so that they do not continue to endanger peace and development in our region. What's your hope for Pakistan? Well, Pakistan is a very close neighbor of India. You know, in many senses, our destinies have been intertwined through through uh, the last few decades. Yeah. And we want Pakistan to be a stable, peaceful country. Uh, we we interact today. We have a dialogue uh, that has been uh, resumed with Pakistan in order to seek the reduction of the trust deficit between the two countries. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Trade and in business ties particularly, I think, can provide a kind of an engine for the growth of the relationship. And in the last few months, we have seen progress made on that front, which is, I would say, encouraging. We need to build on that. We need to build on closer people-to-people -people contact um, and uh, essentially build confidence uh, on both sides. It's very important, but it's essential, it's vital, it's crucial in all this for um, Pakistan to control the forces of terrorism that threaten India. Whenever India has had a terrorist attack, there has been a cross-border connection with that. And today, these forces threaten Pakistani society also. Pakistan has also become uh, affected by the groups that, the very groups that that um, were nurtured on Pakistani soil. So in many senses, that has become a Frankenstein that has, that, mm -hmm. that has literally turned on its creator. So we need to control this and, uh, because this, the primary task for all governments in our region is to ensure development and poverty alleviation and to build a prosperous future. And therefore, we must build good relationships as neighbors. We must seek to normalize these relationships, and we must seek a peaceful resolution to the problems that have complicated our relationship in the past. There's been some dialogue, high-level dialogue, That's right? That's right. You've had a, a Pakistani visit to um, the, Yes, the president of Pakistan was yeah. recently in India. And that's um, a good sign. 
It is. It is a good, good sign. sign, and we need more of this dialogue, more of this contact, more of this communication. But as I said, uh, we must we must ensure that the climate for development of relationships yeah. of this relationship is not complicated by the evil forces of terrorism. And it is, as you once said, you want peace in your neighborhood. That's right. It's so vital for our own development. Right. It is one of the primary tenets of our foreign policy that we want to seek and establish peaceful relations with all our neighbors. And of course, you share so many problems: poverty, educational needs, yes, health, health. Needs. All yes. of these are so important. Infrastructure needs. You know, at at the essence of this, does the notion of Islam cause a problem in terms of the India-Pakistan relationship? Or are the causes much more fundamental in terms of... Not at all. I don't believe, uh, you know, India has ever looked at religion being the cause of the divisions that have existed between our two countries. Right. Uh, because India is a plural society. We have one of the largest Muslim communities in the world uh, who live in India, who are Indians, who are intrinsic part of the fabric of the nation and, uh, you know, make up the identity of our, yeah. of our democracy. We are very, very proud of, of our traditions in that regard. So that is the, I think it is, it is, there are certain attitudinal factors. There's been a certain hostility that has been expressed traditionally from, uh, from certain elements within the Pakistani establishment towards India. And we hope we can overcome overcome that hostility. I hope that, as I've always said, we need sense and sensibility to prevail and not pride and prejudice. That's a good analogy. <laughs> this might be a moment for another musical selection. Do you like John Byers? I do. And I was growing up uh, in India and uh, I was in college. Uh, I was particularly taken with the music of Joan Baez. And uh, I listened a lot to records uh, of hers. And uh, when I was uh, very, I uh, was just about in my final year of my undergraduate studies, a friend came from Madras, uh, the city that's now called Chennai. And um, she gave me a book of Joan Baez songs, which became some kind of a constant companion for me uh, at that stage. I used to play the guitar and, and sing. So I, I very much liked her music and I continue to like uh, Joan Baez um, and her what singing. What would you like to hear? I One particular favorite of mine is Forever Young. Uh, it was, I believe, written by Bob Dylan, but Joan Baez sang it, and I think the way she was able to express uh, that song was beautiful, and, and that certainly rings in my ears even today after so many decades. May God's blessing keep you always May your wishes all come true May you always do for others And let others do for you May you build a ladder to the stars And climb on every rung May you stay Oh, 
May you grow up to be righteous. May you grow up to be true. Our guest today on Profiles is Ambassador Rao, who represents India in Washington, D.C. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. We've been talking about political issues, and I want to return to them. But I also want to remind our listeners that you're a poet. This is a theme that I've been trying to weave through our conversation. Would you like to read another poem for us? Yes, I'd like to. And this poem is um, what I call, You Need an Elephant. And elephants in, in my country are associated a great deal with, uh, with the temples uh, they take part in processions, of course. Uh, they, uh, they have roamed our forests from time immemorial. And um, we have, of course, the much-loved elephant god, Ganesha, oh, yes. of whom you know, and who, is, uh, who we call the god of good beginnings. And so this is a poem uh, about elephants, and it's, it's about you need an elephant. You need an elephant to smile this prescription for a sad country with fate lines that are crossed, scarred, lost in unraveling the many reasons for sadness. Elephants do not loom in this stretching forest, silent, withdrawn, depressed in canyons. But midnight drums in firefly embossed, twittering cricket nights summon you to test your smile in this clearing of temples and suspended oil lamps because it is the season for elephants and abandoning sadness. What a beautiful poem. Thank you. And hopeful. It reminds me of my childhood in Kerala yes. at the temples on, on uh, you know, when you had festivals celebrated in the nights and you had the oil lamps suspended from uh, the yes. doorways of these temples, the lights shining in the night, the fireflies, you could see the fireflies, you could hear the sound of the drums, the midnight drums. And, of course, the elephants in their procession, all caparisoned and beautifully resplendent. Well, thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you. I want to ask one other question about foreign policy and then maybe talk a little bit about India, if we may. Iran. This is a very newsworthy area for U.S. listeners. And India has had a good relationship in the past, but conditions have changed a bit. Tell me about oil and Iran and India. Well, Iran is a country in our neighborhood, and it's an old country, and we have had uh, links with Iran that stretch back across the centuries. These are cross-cultural links, historical links, religious links, because as I mentioned, India has a large Muslim community, and it has a significant population uh, who are Shia and who have links with the Shia Muslims of Iran. In terms of our energy security, we have uh, used um, imports of oil, crude oil, from Iran traditionally. Uh, and that has been the case uh, over many, many, many years now. What has happened as a result of the sanctions that have been imposed against Iran is that um, these 
oil imports from Iran have reduced significantly over time, especially over the last couple of years. And they're expected to go down further. They are going down further as, in fact, we speak, because there are practical uh, realities that that necessitate uh, this reduction of imports. And India has always uh, understood these issues well, and and we have, uh, we have uh, obviously taken steps to diversify our sources of import and to look to other countries to supply us with the oil we need. Because this or these, the import of oil, India is a net oil importing country. So this is vital for our energy security. We have we have a large population, as you are well aware, and there are many of them who live in poverty, who need assistance from the government in terms of economically priced, cheaper, so, uh, you know, availability of oil for their daily uh, needs and their livelihoods. So this is something that no government in, in India can afford to, yeah. to bypass or ignore. So uh, the meeting the energy security needs of our population is of vital importance for us. I, as far as Iran's nuclear program is concerned, we're very, very clear that Iran must cooperate with the international community, with the International Atomic Energy Agency, to answer the very legitimate questions that have been raised about its nuclear program. As a member of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, Iran, of course, has certain rights to develop uh, peaceful uses of nuclear energy, but it has also certain obligations that it must fulfill. And uh, it is in this context that we feel that uh, negotiations and discussions and dialogue must be strengthened with Iran and that uh, there should be a very concerted diplomatic drive uh, to seek a solution because conflict is not the way out. And interestingly enough, you transit through Iran to Afghanistan. Absolutely. I was coming to that. Iran is a, is very uh, – plays an important role when it comes to uh, to addressing the transit needs that uh, we have to access uh, Afghanistan and to do the work, the development work that uh, we want to uh, continue to do in Afghanistan and which we would like to see strengthened in the years to come. Right. It's also an important transit route for us to Central Asia. Right. A moment ago, you mentioned the size of your population, over a billion people. 1.2 billion. 1.2 billion. And, you know, what holds all of this together? Because I think of India in terms of religious differences, regional differences, language differences, racial differences, caste differences. What holds it together? Well, the idea of India and the fact that we are one nation, uh, united, in fact, by so many factors. If you take the culture of India, even if we have different regions and different languages and different uh, uh, ethnicities, I think there is there are certain cultural ties that bind us together from Kashmir to Cape Comoran, Kanyakumari, yes. the southernmost tip of the country. There is a lot that unites us. There is a certain identity that is Indian, that is common to each and every one of us, even if we may speak different languages or have different religions or, or uh, you know, come from different parts of the country. And um, 
India today, as the world's largest democracy, prides itself on its ability to create unity out of this diversity. That is really the India's, I think, the power of India's example for the rest of the world, that you're able to balance diversity and difference and uh, to create unity from it. And, and this is absolutely genuinely said when I speak of it. And you have to go to India to understand this, how unique and precious India's example is. You know, every time I've been to India, I've been impressed by the contrast. 21st century scientific exploration. That's right. 21st century exploration in medicine. And then great poverty, of course. Are you hopeful about the poverty issue? Oh, I am certainly hopeful. India's economy has uh, accelerated in terms of its growth in the last few years. And many millions of people have been lifted out of poverty in the process. I think in the last five years alone, uh, almost 60 million people have been lifted out of poverty. And that is a very, very encouraging statistic. And, you know, if you look at, I mean, they talk of how China has lifted millions of people out of poverty in the last 30 years. And going by uh, the progress that we've made in the last couple of years, I think I'm very confident that over a more enlarged time span, we will be able to solve our problem. Of and you're making strides with education. I mean, alone. Absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, in, in the U.S. alone, there are 100,000 students, I gather, at the moment. Yes. And apart from that, I, I, most, most Indian children, regardless of where they live, in the cities or the countryside, are going to school today. So uh, the literacy in the country is going up, and literacy particularly for girls, which is a subject of great interest um, uh, for all development specialists and for women like me. It has increased uh, visibly and tangibly, and that is going to make a difference for development. Ambassador, we've been talking about the diversity of India, the complexity of India, and maybe this is also a good moment for another piece of music. Would you yes. like to add something and tell us why? Uh, definitely. I, I know one of my particular favorites is by uh, this very well-known composer. I think the world knows him from Slumdog Millionaire, A.R. Rahman. And he composed uh, this beautiful song, in fact, sang it also, uh, for a movie called Swadesh, uh, uh, which really means my country, uh, which was produced a few years ago. And um, it, I think it it to great critical acclaim uh, all across uh, to audiences across the world. It's a beautiful uh, story about, in fact, uh, uh, an Indian who lives in America, and it's very, I think, uh, appropriate Evolved. to our discussion today. And he goes back to India, goes back to uh, a village in India uh, to really work among the people there and to see how he can address with the skills that he has been able to develop living in America, how he can address their development needs. So this is a song about uh, about my country. Swadesh hai 
मुझे है Our guest today on Profiles is Ambassador Rao, who represents India in Washington, D.C. Tell me, issues that come to mind, untouchability, castes, where do we see this changing? You know, I think these are stereotyped views that uh, unfortunately continue to exist in in um, in the minds of uh, of people abroad when you know they think of india uh, these are you know india is changing india is transforming itself this is not the india of yore this is not the india of pre independence days there is great social mobility there is a sense of empowerment democracy has transformed the face of the country so many many underserved underprivileged marginalized groups in the past uh, have found their voice and uh, are expressing themselves on the national scene and they they are are also holding power they are able to exercise power and uh, they you have to go to india at the time of an election just to understand the nature of the transformation that has taken place but it is still the india of gandhi well the, we are committed to the ideals of mahatma gandhi yes. the father of our nation and he he belonged not only to india he belonged to the whole world the, the again the power of his example the power of his life and his work i think it continues to resonate globally but his defining principles i think still are very much a part of indian thought absolutely absolutely even, very even, much intrinsically Absolutely. A part of our thought. Including the Satyagraha, if one takes it into the international realm, where you think of India's role in peacekeeping. And, um, exactly. We are coming almost to the end of our interview. Would you consider reading another poem, perhaps one of my favorites, The Kite? Yes, I'll be happy to read that. This was something I wrote, I think, on a visit to one of the Central Asian republics. And it's called, as you said, The Kite. I shall fly skimming the flaking paint sprite sign over the three ducks in formation and father and son tackling carp I shall fly over red and blue and white of empty amusement parks till my wings touch the top of the needle point neck of a sputnik tower and there entangled blow with the wind or droop listless in the still airwaves thank you we've been speaking with ambassador rao diplomat and poet thank you so much for being with us this is patrick o'mara for profiles and thank you for listening the program you just heard was recorded in april of 2012 the studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Pascash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. 
Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.